You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Morning, everybody. Morning. It's always we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. <laughs> Ephesians uh, chapter five, we're into this week, and uh, there's a lot in there, so I'm going to have to talk very fast. If you can open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter five, and we will get started. The institution of marriage, as we've known it for thousands of years. A, uh, a marriage of one man with one woman for life has been under attack in recent years. It's been under attack for probably 50 or 60 years, definitely, ever since uh, I was a little kid. When I was a little kid, it was unusual uh, for people to live together. And then the sexual revolution of the 60s came about and uh, became more and more common. And... Um, then in the last 10 years or so, there's been the push for same-sex marriage, which is now enshrined in law in much of Western society. When we understand what marriage really is, we may be a little bit less surprised about the attack on marriage. But when you go to a Christian wedding, you still often hear the passage from Genesis chapter 2 about God creating Eve as a suitable helper for Adam. And it says, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And therefore a man shall leave his mother, his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's a foundational passage for marriage, which is why it's often shared at weddings. When we read through the Old Testament, we see the importance of faithful and monogamous marriage all the way through there. You see plenty of polygamous marriages in the Old Testament as well. The Bible doesn't shy away from reporting polygamous marriages, um, even amongst God's favourites like David and King Solomon, but also doesn't shy shy away from showing the disastrous consequences of those marriages. Now Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, and Solomon had 300 wives and 700 mistresses. I wonder how he got a reputation for wisdom because I find it a full-time job being a husband of one wife. (laughs) When we get into the New Testament, of course, we see Jesus honouring the institution of marriage at the wedding at Cana, for example, in John chapter 2. Marriage is important. It should be between one man and one woman for life. That's the original design. You recall that the Pharisees in uh, Matthew 19 came to Jesus with a question about marriage and divorce. They were hoping to trip him up. And they came to him and, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's Genesis chapter 2 again. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You've heard that at however many weddings you've been to. And Jesus puts an impossibly high standard on sexual purity when he says, if you've even looked at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. 
Paul, of course, talks about the importance of value and value of marriage in many of his letters, including where he says that elders and deacons must be the husband of one wife. But there's a rather strange story in the Old Testament, in the book of Hosea. Hosea was one of God's holy prophets, and he, God commanded Hosea, the faithful prophet, to marry a prostitute. Hosea 1.2 tells us, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now Gomer eventually gives Hosea three children with increasingly depressing names. The first one is Jezreel, which speaks about avenging blood. The second one was named No Mercy. And the third was named Not My People. After giving birth to these three children, imagine growing up with names like that. But these three children, Gomer goes off and prostitutes herself again and eventually sells herself into bondage to her lovers. We'll come back to that story a little bit later on. But let's get into Ephesians chapter 5 now. If you open up to Ephesians 5, it starts off with a couple of verses that connect us with chapter 4. You may recall last week we were talking about in chapter 4 about maintaining the unity of the Spirit by being godly in our behaviour, especially towards our brothers and sisters in the church. And it starts off, chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Now there's plenty of ways, obviously, that we can never be imitators of God. Mike's been preaching through a series on the attributes of God, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience, his eternality, all these other things that we could never imitate God in because we are created beings. But there are some ways we can imitate God in. Ephesians 4 has told us that. The rest of the Bible tells us lots of them. Some of them are that we can speak the truth in love to each other. In Ephesians 4, we, we, well, it was a warning to us to not steal or sponge off others, but take up honest work so that we can be generous to others. Watch your mouth so that you only speak words that build up others and give them grace. Be kind, tender-hearted and forgiving towards each other. When we do those sorts of things, we're imitators of God. In verse 2 it says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Then we get to verse 3. Paul charges us with something that is difficult to do in a sex-saturated society. And he says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. The NIV puts that particular verse, But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Because these things are improper for God's holy people. And he goes on to say, Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. We're bombarded with sexual messages 
suggestive ads on TV, graphic portrayals of sex in movies that leaves very little to our imagination. It's not just the more obvious and blatant sexual sin we need to be worried about. Paul warns us there about foolish talk and crude joking as well. David asked the question in Psalm 119 verse 9, How can a young man keep his way pure? And he answers it by guarding it according to your word. How desperately we need to know, to understand and to obey the word of God. If we're to be imitators of God, if we're to avoid impurity. Remember Paul said that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. That's frightening warning. But how is it possible for us even to keep our thoughts pure? What are we to do? We need the help of someone who was able to do it perfectly, for someone who did do it perfectly on our behalf. Remember back in verse 2, Paul wrote, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus Christ is the only person in history who was ever able to do this, to keep his thoughts pure, to live the life of purity that was demanded by God. And he did it on behalf of all of those who would put their trust in him for salvation. If you're a Christian, all your sexual immorality, all your impurity, all of your covetousness, and every other sin has been paid for on the cross by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's been dealt with once and for all. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. What an incredible message. What an incredible thing we need to understand when we're reading Ephesians and Paul warns us about sexual immorality. That there is someone who has done it on our behalf. That doesn't mean we're free from the struggle against sin every day. We must struggle against it. It must be a struggle. We must never give in to it. We will continue to struggle with sin until Christ returns. There will never be a day where we're free of it. But when we fall, and we inevitably will fall, there's someone to turn to. We have an advocate before the Father, John wrote in one of his letters, Christ Jesus, the righteous one. When we fall, which we will, we should fly to him in repentance and faith for the forgiveness that we've been, we have received at the cross. But you might say again, again, turn to Christ again, the third time today, the tenth time this week. Can I continue to turn to him? Won't he get sick of me coming to him? Won't he say, enough, sort yourself out, come back when you've got your life straightened up? No, he won't. He never will. We can turn to him a thousand times a day. He is our advocate before the Father. There is no condemnation 
For those in Christ Jesus, his arms are always open. I hope and I pray that your sin, whether it's sexual sin or covetousness or bad-mouthing people, whatever it may be, will cause you to turn to your advocate every day, every moment of every day, for his grace, for his mercy. His mercy is infinite. It never runs out. And when we go to him, we should go in awe. We should be humbled. We should be trembling that such a holy God would still welcome us with open arms. What a God we have. What a saviour we have. But if instead you prefer to indulge your sin, if you feel no remorse for it, if you sometimes feel no shame for it, you show disturbing evidence that you may not be saved. That's something you need to take up with the Lord and get sorted. How do you feel about your sin? Verse 6, Paul moves on. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What does sexual immorality and those other sins have to do with empty words, I wonder? You hear it from so many quarters today. You can't judge others by their sexual orientation. So it's a dominant belief in our society now. It's a dominant practice in a lot of churches now. There are many churches that actually take great pride in ordaining gay people into the ministry. Now I've been focusing on sexual immorality here in part because it's so pervasive in our society but don't miss that it's not only sexual immorality that Paul's concerned about. Don't imagine you're safe because you're faithful to your wife and don't look at porn. Because Paul also talks there about impurity and covetousness, greed. Impurity covers all sorts of sin. Covetousness is prevalent in our society. You only have to watch TV for half an hour and you'll see TV shows and ads that are designed to make you want more. To be unhappy with the way you look. To be unhappy with your lot in life. To need that new car. To want a better looking girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever. All of society is geared towards making us covetous. Paul would tell you that that message is empty words. They're empty words that bring the wrath of God on those who practice that sort of disobedience. And he says in verse 7, Therefore do not become partners with them. It's going to become more and more challenging for us to stand apart from society as Christians. To go against the flow. But we must do it. We must stand for what it is that God stands for. We must oppose the things that invite his wrath. Now in verse 8, Paul warns us about the danger of being dragged back into the immorality of the world we live in. And he tells us that we are and we must be beacons of light in this world. He says, for at one time you were darkness, but now, now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And in verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We are children of light, Paul says. Not you will be. You are. We are. We must, therefore, be lighthouses in darkness. How will your friends and your family and your workmates know where to turn if they can't see light in the darkness? And we must display the fruit of light. The only thing fruit needs to grow is a healthy tree that's planted in good soil, that gets regular watering and light. The only stuff that grows in the dark is mushrooms. Fruit (laughs) grows in light. So stay planted in the good soil of the word of God. Avoid mushrooms. (laughs) (laughs) Keep watering your plant with regularly with prayer and worship and keep it fertilized with the encouragement of your fellow believers and when you do that guess what the fruit of light which is good and right and true will grow and it will grow naturally verse 11 take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Not only is it shameful to participate in the works of darkness, Paul says it's shameful to even speak of these things. But how are we to avoid that sort of shame when we're bombarded with Love Island and Married at First Sight and all that sort of stuff on TV? They're all designed to celebrate sex and sexual attraction. But they're our guilty pleasures, aren't they? They're the shows we like to watch when the other people from church aren't coming around. If we're honest with ourselves, many of us are quite happy to live not just with a hint of sexual immorality, but with sometimes blatant sexuality. Funny thing is, though, that when Paul says it's shameful to even speak of them, we're told to expose them. How do you expose something that you're not allowed to talk about? Challenge? I think... The way we expose is by being distinctly different in our attitudes, in our speech, in our behaviour, in our love and care for each other, in our selflessness, in our commitment to Christ, in our radical obedience to his word. Most things are made obvious by contrast not by similarities. That's why they show a diamond on a black background. So it reflects the light and there's a contrast between the two. What Paul means when he says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you is not entirely clear. Most commentators are not entirely clear what he's talking about there. My guess is that he's saying that when we live distinctly Christian lives in the world, others will be awakened from their darkness and their spiritual slumber 
to see the light of Christ in us and through us. Remember, Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 2, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Francis of Assisi is accused of saying, preach the gospel at all times and use words when necessary. It's not entirely a biblical concept, but it is true in that our words and our actions must line up. We're hypocrites if we're saying things we don't do and doing things we don't say. Moving on, verse 15. Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It's no question that trying to walk this way is tough. But we don't walk it alone. We have the power of the Holy Spirit, firstly, to work within us to bring about the change and to stir us to walk this way. And we have, or at least we should have, the encouragement of our brothers and sisters in Christ to walk and to continue to walk this way. For these are evil days. There's no doubt about it. But think, how much less work will you have to do to convince someone of the value of Christ if they're already seeing it in your life and your walk? Paul continues in verse 18 to show us how to get along with each other. And again, it's by being different from those in the world. In Australia, there's a certain strange pride about getting drunk. I had a big one on Friday night, knocked back a whole slab on my own. We would brag, and I used to brag, I've got to say. But Paul warns us in verse 18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Our behaviour should set us apart. Rather than drunkenness and debauchery, we're to be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is not like being drunk. That's Paul's point there. Drunkenness causes us to lose control of our mouth, our actions, our emotions, our senses. We say and we do stupid stuff when we're drunk. We say and we do harmful stuff when we're drunk. But in contrast, we're to be filled with the Spirit. And when we're filled with the Spirit, we're in control. We speak the truth in love. We act in sacrificial ways to build the other person up. We recognise how good God has been to us and we respond with thanksgiving and we follow after Jesus Christ rather than our own lusts and appetites. And we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What could you imagine in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that would tear other people down? I can't think of anything. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs can only build up 
And when we speak to other people like that, we build them up. And at the same time, we build up ourselves. Being filled with the Spirit will also motivate us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Mutual submission is one of the evidences of saving grace. It's one of the marks of a true church. Mutual submission allows different roles and different functions within the church and within the body of Christ. And we do it all out of reverence for Christ. He is our motivation. He must always be our motivation. And all these things work to maintain the unity that we already have amongst us. Not just on church and church on a Sunday morning, but every day of the week and every time we meet. Paul then moves on in verse 22 to a pretty famous and sometimes pretty controversial passage. It's often read as well at weddings and it's often used to keep women in their place. Hence the reason it's so controversial. In verse 22 Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. You can see why some might not like this passage. The husband is the head of the wife. Wives should submit in everything to their husbands. That's a stumbling block to so many people. Sadly, when people read submit here, they tend to think of submission, oppression, maybe even slavery. Many people consider the Bible to be the, mis- the most sexist, misogynist, patriarchal text ever written that demeans and oppresses women. But did you know that the Bible was actually the first book in history, the first recorded writing that actually expresses honour, worth, value and dignity of women. There was nothing written 2,000 years ago and for most of the 2,000 years since that does anything to say anything about the value of women, to suggest even they're made in the image of God, let alone that they're worth anything themselves. In ancient cultures, women, and especially wives, had little value. They were usually ignored. Their word meant nothing. The word of a child meant more than the word of a woman in the court of law. They were considered often less valuable than livestock. In Greek culture, the wife's job was to give her husband children, nothing more. If he wanted pleasure, he had a mistress. And the mistress was worth more than the wife because he got pleasure from her. And sexual promiscuity was not only tolerated, it was often encouraged and even written into law in some cultures. But the very first woman, Eve, was made in the image of God. Made in the image of God. What does that say about value? She was a helper suitable for Adam. There's no suggestion there that she was in any way less important, less valuable or less significant than Adam. 
Because she too was made in the image of God. Every woman since has been made in the image of God. The biblical principle of monogamous marriage for life should mean, unfortunately it doesn't always, but should mean that a woman is valued, protected and loved in ways that recognise her worth and recognise the fact that she's made in God's image. Now Jesus treated women with respect and dignity in ways that was pretty much unheard of in that culture. In some instances was even scandalous the way he treated women. The sort of submission that Paul's talking about here is not a forced submission. It's a voluntary submission. It's born out, firstly, of a relationship with Christ because it's designed to reflect our relationship with Christ. It's a willing submission as to the Lord, Paul writes. This passage does not permit a man to rule his wife with an iron fist. It's been done too much in Christian circles. It's been used to justify keeping the woman barefoot and pregnant and chained to the kitchen sink, so to speak. This passage does not permit an ungodly submission where the wife is expected to do something illegal or degrading or sinful. It does not allow for that. None of that sort of submission is submission as to the Lord. If we should become aware of marriages in which there's that type of submission, Christian marriages especially, or any other marriage, we have an obligation to confront it and say, that's not on. That's not God's design for marriage. Now the fact that women are equal does not mean that they are interchangeable with men. You only have to look at women and men to know they're not interchangeable. doesn't matter what culture tells us. There is a difference. doesn't mean there's no distinctions between us. We've been created equal, but we've been created with different roles and different purposes. Now the, Paul, the, the command that Paul gave here to husbands would have been a shock 2,000 years ago. A wife submitting to a husband was what wives were expected to do. There's nothing shocking or surprising about that. But in verse 25, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That would have been shocking to the Ephesians. That would have been shocking to every culture of the day and to many, many cultures to this very day. Wife, submit to your husband. That's what's supposed to be done. Husband, lay down your life for your wife. That's unheard of. But that's precisely what Paul is insisting on. The way Jesus expressed his love for the church, which is his bride, was to lay down his life for her. Husbands are called to do the same thing for their wives. We have a number of husbands here with us this morning. Can you honestly say you love your wife as Christ loved the church? Would you give yourself up for her? Are you prepared to die for her? Wives, if you knew your husband loved you in that way, 
would you be willing to submit to him? So many husbands and far too many churches get it wrong on just this point. They demand submission from the wives while not displaying sacrificial love. It's no wonder this passage is a dirty word for so many people. Paul goes on, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. As important as this passage is for understanding how to be married, it's actually really telling us a much bigger story a far more important story than just marriage. The story it's telling us is that marriage is a picture of the gospel. Earthly marriage, while it's designed for the pleasure and the good of a husband and a wife, is meant to tell us something about Christ and his church. It's meant to tell us something about God's purposes for the end of time. You know, the church is referred to the bride of Christ in Scripture. Revelation 21 tells us, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, because the first heaven and first heaven and the first earth had disappeared and the sea was gone. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Earthly marriage is a picture of new creation. Earthly marriage is a picture of heavenly realities. It's a picture of a future time when God's plan to unite all things together in Christ will be consummated. We've been reading all about that as we've been working through Ephesians these last several weeks. Earthly marriage is a picture of when the process of joining together Jew and Gentile male and female, slave and free, in the church will finally and fully be completed. That's why marriage can only be between a man and a woman. That's why it's important. It can't be between a man and a man, that's not marriage. It can't be between a woman and a woman, or a man and his dog. Or a woman and the Berlin Wall. That sounds ridiculous, but in 1979, a woman married the Berlin Wall in front of a group of invited guests. And she was reportedly devastated when the wall was knocked down. (laughs) They had destroyed her husband. This is serious stuff. People marry objects today. That is not marriage. It can't be marriage because true marriage is supposed to reflect the heavenly reality. That's why it's man and woman. It's Christ and his bride that we're revealing. Any other sort of union spoils and degrades the image and the message. It's also why we're commanded to keep ourselves sexually pure. Because anything else tells the wrong message about God. My issue with same-sex marriage 
is nothing to do with human rights or homophobia, doesn't even have anything to do with love. My issue is theological. Marriage is designed to reflect a heavenly reality, Christ and his church. Anything else takes away from that picture. So what's the husband's role in the marriage? The same as Christ's. To love his wife in such a way that he would lay his life down for her and contribute to her holiness. Christ cleanses his bride by washing her in the water of the word of God, the Bible. That's why you're gathered here this morning to be washed in the water of the word of God. Just so an earthly husband is to love his wife by bringing the word of God to her so that she too can be saved and conform to the image of Christ without spot or wrinkle, it says. Paul said back in Ephesians 1.13 that the Ephesians themselves were saved when they heard the word of truth. So the husband's responsibility is to bring the word of truth to his wife so that she may also be saved. And if she's already saved so that she may be built up in Christ. This is a high calling, gentlemen. This is a high calling. Christ's example of sacrificial love is the model that we as husbands have to follow in marriage. Husband should put his wife's well-being and spiritual health above his own. Christ laid down his life for this bride. I suspect not many people think in these terms when they consider head, headship and submission in marriage. But that's the way Christ loved the church. That's the way Christ loved his bride, his body. Verse 28, it says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Husbands, the things we do for our own benefit, we must be doing for our wives as well. Husbands are more joined to, husbands and wives are joined together as one flesh. Therefore, Paul goes on, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's Genesis again. Genesis 2.24, which is where that quote about leaving father and mother and holding fast to the wife and becoming one flesh, Genesis 2.24 tells us that the picture of marriage goes right back to the Garden of Eden what God had in mind for marriage right from the beginning it wasn't something that he made up later on right from the very beginning of creation God's plan was to use marriage to show us a greater reality it wasn't just designed for the benefit of man and woman it was designed to reveal God's plan of joining Together, all things in Christ. Marriage is a visual aid for the gospel. Have you ever thought about it that way? 
What a beautiful picture that is of marriage. A visual aid for the gospel. Paul goes on and says, this mystery is profound in verse 32. This mystery is profound, profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Marriage has been distorted and corrupted by the fall. We see it in the polygamous practices in the Bible and in many cultures and religions around the world. You see how it's been distorted and corrupted in the Hindu practice of sati where the widow is burnt alive on her husband's funeral pyre. You see it in our society in gay marriage. Marriage has been corrupted by the fall. But marriage can be restored to its rightful place by the gospel. Women who have been trodden down and oppressed will find themselves loved sacrificially. Men who formerly would treat women as objects for their own lust will begin to lead sacrificially, putting her good ahead of his own. How can anyone argue against that? But some will. Some will. But arguments against it doesn't change the beautiful truth of godly Christian marriage. Now I mentioned earlier the strange story about God calling his holy prophet Hosea to marry the prostitute Gomer and the the awful names that he gave to the children, Jezreel, no mercy and not my people. Gomer abandoned her husband and the children and went off chasing after other lovers. But that's not the end of the story. Again, this is a picture, a picture of beautiful things. God told Hosea to go after his wife and purchase her back from bondage. Hosea 3.1 says, The Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. The Lord said through Hosea, I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, You are my people. And you will say, you are my God. What a beautiful picture Ephesians has been telling us about here of marriage. Ephesians has been telling us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Tells us that we've been carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Tells us we were separated from Christ. And that we had given ourselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's what Ephesians tells us we were. But God being rich in mercy said to those who are called no mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. 
by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of work so that no one may boast. Those who were no mercy have now received mercy. Those who are not my people are now my people. And it's made possible because Jesus Christ left his father, became a man, purchased for himself a bride so that the two, Christ and the church, it's you and me, if you put your faith in him, so that the two may become one flesh. Christ is in the business of making his bride perfect. He's cleansing her by washing her with the water of his word so that he might present this bride to himself in splendour without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This mystery is profound, Paul says. And I'm saying that refers to Christ and the church. This is the reality of marriage, the heavenly marriage. This is what all of this points to. From Genesis chapter 2 onwards, through Hosea, through David and Solomon with all his wives and mistresses. It's what it all points to. A new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, dressed as a bride, adorned for her husband. Do you know this reality for yourself? Have you been purchased by this husband? That's the offer of the gospel, folks. Turn to Christ in repentance and in faith. Not only does he promise to take care of you now, in spite of what might happen to you, including death and horrible death, he will take care of you, but you'll receive mercy. You'll become his people and he will keep you safe to the end. Amen. Would you bow your heads, Heavenly Father? We continue to be challenged and confronted by your word. And every day, Lord, we're conscious that we're not imitators of God as we should be. That we still entertain and even delight in sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, foolish talk, crude joking. Lord, we confess our failure and our sin to you. We ask, Lord, that you cleanse our hearts and our minds afresh so that we will walk as children of light and bear the fruit of light 
Help us, Lord, to walk wisely. Help us, Lord, to walk in a way that brings you honour and glory. Fill us afresh with your spirit, we pray, Lord, that we would give thanks to you in everything. And teach us, Lord, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ our Saviour. For those of us who are married, Lord, I pray that our marriages will be earthly reflections of the marriage of Christ and his bride. And Lord, we all look forward to that day of the great marriage supper of the Lamb, that last day when Jesus Christ comes back to collect his bride. We pray all this, Lord, in the great and the glorious name of our husband, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.